This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 407. And the quote of the day is, real transformation requires real honesty. If you want to move forward, get real with yourself first. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Uh, Nick Ruffini here. This is episode 407. 407. That's insane. You can find all of these 100% free. You can get them on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, Spotify, all that fun stuff. And if you dig this, do me a favor. Leave a rating or review on iTunes. You can jump on there. It takes you about a minute and a minute and a half. You can write how you feel about it. Rate it one through five. All that fun stuff. And what that does, that actually helps the podcast show up higher in the search results. And that helps more people find out about it. And if you've already left a rating or review, thank you very much. And also share this around. Share it on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and all that stuff. Let your other friends know about this podcast. Let them know that it's going on. That's all I ask. And I want to get right into this conversation. This is with Cliff Almond and... I've been wanting to get Cliff on for a long time. One, because he is a badass player. And two, I love his approach. Uh, he, he always talks about sort of being honest with yourself and, and being very, uh, self aware of the things that you're doing and, and manifesting the things that you want to achieve. And we get deep into this stuff. Uh, we also talk about his major influence of Dave, of, of Dave Weckl being a major influence of his, I should say, getting to meet him at a really young age, how Dave recommended for the Michelle Camillo gig and just him moving to New York. There's a lot of great stuff in here. And we get really deep on these topics again about self-awareness and about being honest with yourself and about developing certain skills that you need to get to the next level, all of that stuff. So just an amazing conversation with a amazing player that, like I said, I've won, been wanting to get him on here for a long time and now we got him so let's get into it with the one and only cliff almond cliff how are you my man i'm good man nice to meet you yeah likewise <laughs> via uh, via phone <laughs> the the virtual the virtual meet yeah well it's you know all too common these days yeah uh, it's you know yeah. i love it though it's i mean i think about I think about not only the fact that that I can do these these interviews. I do some in person, some remotely, depending on on who it is and where they are. Uh, but the amazing thing is, not only can I do the interviews, but as soon as they're released, they're distributed all over the world, and people can listen to them. That's the most amazing thing to me. It really is. I mean, this is an amazing time to be alive, uh, as far as technology and you know, especially how it affects music in particular. But just stuff like this. I mean. Skype and FaceTime and things like that. I mean, last time I was on the road, I think I was in Japan or some somewhere vastly different, you know, other side of the world from New York where I live. I was FaceTiming with somebody in New York and, you know, like sort of collaborating on something we were going to rehearse and work on. And I, I was just, when I hung up, I was thinking, this is just unbelievable because I've been out for quite a few years. And I remember when I used to have to go down to the lobby of the Tokyo Hilton to buy a phone card just to, to call and check my messages in New York City. Right. right. And now you can do everything via internet. It doesn't cost anything, or if it does, it's really, you know, not not expensive. It's just incredible where mm -hmm. things have gone. The interesting thing that I've noticed too is a lot of people when they're when they're home, they don't want to do the interview 
they're like, oh, let me, I'll just wait till I'm on the road because they have so much downtime and the the technological capabilities are there so they can, you know, it, it's something else to do on the road for them instead of just, instead of just sitting at a hotel room, you know? True. I guess, depending on what kind of tour you're on. I mean, if, right. you know, if you have, if you're, if you're on a tour where you have a lot of downtime, that that's a luxury. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, I don't mean that, you know, in the wrong way. It's just like, it, it's funny. Cause like I do a lot of different styles and different levels of things. There's some rock things I do where, you know, you sit around all day in a hotel room and then you go out and you play these big venues. And then other, other times you do a jazz tour where you're on three flights a day and you, you see the hotel room for a half hour before mm-hmm. you, you know, before you go to sleep and then you leave at five in the morning. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I can see both sides of that downtime. Sometimes too, people like to keep their downtime entirely separate from their road life, mm-hmm. you know, just by just mentally psychologically they completely separate it sometimes it has a lot to do with their wife making that demand right also right, right which right. is lo- logical sure <laughs> I, guess. I think too much downtime is a problem though you know you, you it get is, on the road uh, and and you just you don't you don't have anything to do I mean, what do they say a, an idle mind is the devil's playground it's really true i mean that's really true and especially if you're when it comes to downtime on the road depending on where you are um, if you're stuck in a town that has nothing going on, or if you're stuck in a town where nobody speaks English or, um, there's nothing to see or whatever. And I mean, now at least you have computers and things like that. You, you can always sort of have something to do, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to sound old, but you know, back in the day, as they say, <laughs> being on the road in, in Japan or Indonesia or something, and you know, all there was was CNN international and you, you were lucky to get that. So right. you'd either go out and find something to do or you'd go and drink somewhere, which a lot of us ended up doing too, (laughs) which I guess makes everything fun until the next day. Right. Right. (laughs) I remember my uncle, uh, my uncle works for the foreign service and you know, he lived in Japan for, for a couple of years and he lived all over the world. And you know, a lot of times he said, he's just like, I don't, I don't have anything. I don't have any friends over here. I don't speak the language. He was like, so everyone speaks the language of going out and drinking. So right. Like, you know, it's, it's amazing <laughs> bonding mechanism for some reason, Even, you know, before you know it, you can actually understand each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's terrible actually, it's a, but, but that really does happen. Right. I, I bring of friends. That's of mine. never happened to me, but right. Right. I've heard stories. I bring friends of mine. Uh, I have a place in Italy and I bring friends of mine all the time and I speak the language, but my friends don't. And the last time I was there, my buddy Mark was like, you know, it's amazing how well I speak Italian after I've had a couple of drinks. And he doesn't exactly. speak a lick of Italian, you know? Right. And I'm sure uh, you, you actually speaking Italian don't have the heart to tell him that he's just making it up and <laughs> right. thinking he's speaking Italian. Right. <laughs> Thank God for friends. Exactly. Exactly. So you would, you mentioned, you were saying, oh, back in the day, I want to talk about a little bit about your childhood because I think it's really interesting the way that, that you grew up. And I, I know that you grew up in a family of professional musicians. You had that. Um, I, I think from the outside, people look at it as an advantage. Did you look at that as an advantage or did you look at it as, was there a lot of pressure in your household to sort of, to sort of keep that tradition alive and to, to be an an amazing musician right now, looking back, obviously it was definitely an advantage. Um, I was really fortunate in that my parents didn't 
really force it on me, but it was just through os- osmosis that, that it happened. And, and I'm the youngest of, of three boys, and my oldest brother is the only one in the family who is not a musician. He's uh, aeronautical engineer. He's incredibly talented at that end of things. And he had his own version of what we did with music. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was, you know, drawing pictures of drum sets on, on anything I could find. And I was just uh, obsessed with the drums before I even played them. It was really weird. And my brother was like this with airplanes. He did, you know, he's drawing pictures of airplanes and he had a very similar career path in terms of how things unfolded for him from the time he was 10 or 12 years old. He was, you know, hanging out at the local airport and things like that. And I was doing the same thing with drums. But my middle brother, who I haven't mentioned yet, is is uh, I, I should mention my parents are classical musicians. My father's a choral conductor and was the head of the vocal music department at SDSU San Diego State when I was growing up. And my mother is a piano teacher. Um, and so naturally they started my oldest brother on an instrument and he didn't really like it. And he, you know, stuck to drawing planes. And <laughs> then my middle brother is a violinist and they started him on violin when he was three or four and kind of a similar thing from what I understand. He was playing in tune at a real young age. He just had a, some sort of aptitude for, for doing what was instinctively right on the instrument. So hmm. if your parents you know, or musicians, and they see that kind of aptitude in a child, then if, you know, hopefully they can balance it and not push too hard and, and, and guide the kid in the right direction, which fortunately for us, that's what happened. Um, they tried the same thing with me. They tried to start me on violin. Um, I've never actually spoken to them about if that was a, something that, that they would have pushed me on because I just didn't like the violin. I mean, I started, doing the same things my brother had done. I just wasn't into it. And I was taking out as a standard drummer thing. When you're a little kid, you're taking pots and pans out of the cupboards and Mm -hmm. setting up like a little drum set and beating them with wooden spoons. I was doing that. And fortunately they picked up on that when I was five, maybe six years old. And they bought me a snare drum to see how that would work. And I took to it. And then they, every Christmas, we didn't have, you know, we're not, very well off. My family were very like sort of lower, lower middle class level of income, you know, musicians. So mm-hmm. they didn't always have a lot to, to do um, financially. So they, they couldn't really afford to get me a whole kit. They would just get me a little piece every year, either on my birthday or on Christmas. And right. So they got me a snare, a hi hat, and a ride over the course of three or four years. And then they finally just broke down and rented me a drum set. And from that point on, um, I, I didn't want anything to do with anything except playing the drums. I didn't want to play mm-hmm. sports. I didn't want to do, I just wanted to sit and play with records all day. Right. Um, so that's what I did. Basically. <laughs> there's such, there's, I, and I've talked about this on the podcast before that there is such an underrated, uh, there's such an underrated skill that comes with sitting down and playing with records. Over oh man. And over yeah. and over again. I, like, I think that, there's so much more that can be learned with that versus just like sitting in a pad for hours and hours. Well, yeah. And you know, it's interesting you bring that up because like, you know, this is sort of a different um, area we could get into. But um, when I look back at the most valuable 
things in terms like career wise that I learned when I was coming up from, you know, for one time, for one thing, before you're 10, 15 years old, that's, you know, you're absorbing everything around you just, you know, growing up. Those things, when they get in your, in your, the fabric of, of who you are, those records that, you know, the Beatles records or all the stuff that I was listening to, that's your foundation, obviously, for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. By the time, you know, I was teaching myself all this stuff just by listening to records, or hopefully, I don't know if that sounds more egotistical than I mean it, but <laughs> by the time they got me to a, a guy to actually teach me, I hated it. Really? I didn't, I didn't want to study. I was on this thing of like, well, I don't need this guy. You know, I was an idiot. I was probably fifth or sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I don't need to learn snare drum, and I don't need to do this. And then by the time I got to seventh or eighth grade, I realized that you know I, I listened to, to Steve Gadd for the first time, and I was like, okay, well, that's obviously all breaks to snare drum. That mm-hmm. all breaks down to snare drum techniques. So right. Then I respected it more. But what I'm getting at in terms of the different the the different tangent is that these days I look around and I see a lot, especially on the internet. I see like YouTube stuff of these guys with incredible chops and just incredible, just all this facility. But a lot of the the when I see them actually play with a band, I can tell that they didn't necessarily grow up playing with records or, or playing with a band. Mm-hmm. You know, how and so? I think, just the just well, the, it's the musicality really, out there. You know, it's hard to put into words. There, there are instincts that that you develop playing with bands in terms of what to do, like like mm-hmm. how to make the band, especially if you're playing drums, because drums are the center of especially in pop music but in a lot of styles of music drums are are a real sort of framework of what's going on and in my adult life as a musician the guys that to me have reached the highest level of musicianship are not guys that necessarily have all the the most amazing chops even though a lot of them do but they're the guys who can come in and hear something and know exactly what to do to really make it all come together Mm-hmm. And that's on any instrument. That yeah. that's not just drums. I mean, I've seen trumpet players sit in with a terrible band, and the band just all of a sudden elevates to a new level because the guy was a great musician. Right. You know? right. That's kind of the deeper stuff that I don't really see focused on as much these days um, as it was when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. It was like that was really drilled into me because I was getting into this chop phase and learning Vinny stuff and Dave Weckl stuff and Chambers and all that. And I, I mean, we're all addicted to that stuff and and i still work on it now but there's a time when that stuff won't really help you right you know? right and I, I don't always see that talked about so much these days it's interesting that you say that because at as you're saying all this i'm thinking back about how i started playing and i was i played with rec i think the first time i ever played or the second time i ever sat behind a drum set there was a i was playing with an, other musicians so like friends of mine right. with the guitar and, and a bass, we had no idea what, I mean, you know, I still don't know what I'm doing, but, uh, none of us do. Right. So, but like I learned with records and then I started a band and I was playing and I, I was a late bloomer coming into technique. Um, like it took, I, like I couldn't read until I got to college, you know, I, I was pretty, right. I was pretty far behind, but I remember someone told me, they said, you've killer instincts, which you don't learn, you know, playing on a pad or anything like that. And 
looking back now, I'm like, it, that's because I guess, and this isn't me bragging. This is me just sort of, you know, adding on to what you're saying of like, I guess I learned those because I've always been just playing with other people or been playing with records or, or something like that. And then realize, okay, now I need some technique because I need to be able to express what I'm hearing in my head. Completely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and that makes perfect sense. And, and it adds up when you see the guys who've really, you know, had really strong careers or people that we know as household names, even if they have the most incredible facility in the world, they have this other instinct where they can, they can walk into any situation, as crazy as that situation may be, and make music out of it with a band to where they're not stepping on anybody's toes. They're not, you know, and uh, this is like kind of similar. Sounds like your background's a little similar to mine. Um, and that, you know, I was playing garage bands and doing all that mm -hmm. and I didn't know what I was developing, but I do remember that when I was in my teens, I got a gig in a fifties band and everybody was older than me. And I was in this phase of, you know, rush and Steve Gadd and all this stuff. And I'm going into these club gigs, playing five sets a night, you know, being too young to be in the club and I'm cramming in every Vinnie call you to lick I can <laughs> right. on, on run around Sue. You know? <laughs> and that was much to the, the dismay of the guys in the band. But that period ended up being a huge shaping scenario for me. It's like I learned really quick that, okay, I can do all this other stuff, but I can't, you know, there, there are places for it. And mm -hmm. that's not, that can't just be the focus because that's a means to an end. Right. I have to, if I'm going to make a living at this in particular, I'm going to have to not only learn to play a groove, not only learn this and that, but, you know, working with producers and the way you hit and the way that the instrument sounds. And, you know, I mean, there's so many things to learn. I, I don't always see those things focused on these days, which is too bad because I, maybe it's because people fix things like that in the studio or people, you know, it's, it's a different, different time, but my years after I was in this band, I just ended up in the studio in my hometown playing a lot of jingles and doing things like that. And that was the biggest learning experience of all, because then you're, you know, you're playing with these bands, you're playing these styles and you're doing it on tape. So you're forced to go in and listen to what you actually sound like, right. which is terrifying, you know, but yeah, especially it when you're you cutting lot. the tape and there's like, you're not fixing this. You know, exactly. Like, that was all two inch tape. Man. Yeah. And it was like, it's like, okay, here's the click and you better make it feel good. And we got, you know, you got 30 seconds and we can't go back and listen to it because there's a stack of charts there. You know? mm -hmm. and that teaches you so much. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. That's, that's exactly, that's, that instinct is developed, I believe, through that, through right. that kind of right. exposure. And I, I, for me, and tell me if this happened to you too, but at some point, like, I guess you, you learn sort of your initial technique just by playing, right? So you're like, oh, playing these songs and you're like, whatever this thing is that I'm hearing, I figured out of my hands and you're like, oh, I, I didn't real you don't realize that you're playing a paradiddle or something or whatever it is. Right. Uh, but then at some point you're like, wait a minute, I need, I need something else. I need some more chops here or something because I can't, I can't play this thing that I'm hearing or I can't like, I can't get around the kit this way or I can't play a shuffle because you know, I can't, I don't have the, I can't accent certain notes and different things like that. Uh, did, yeah. you, did you run into that? Yeah, I ran into a lot of that. I mean, this is like kind of where the, the, the 
I'm a, I'm a big believer that that your psychology and your approach to life about really learning or any subject or that there's some people who are curious and there's some people who are not and who you know they they they're fine once they get to a certain place they they feel content you know I just never was pretty much with anything I'm still not now so whenever I would sit down in fact you just mentioned you just reminded me when when I was a kid my my brother, the violinist I was mentioning, also had a stint with drums, and he had a, a band that he would play my, with my drum set in our garage. And they learned that song, um, is, it, is it, what was it, the Boston tune? It was like, do to god do to god do to god I can't remember. Oh, it. it was uh, one on the first Boston record. Is that like, is that foreplay? Uh... It's that, that record, but I think it was smoking. do to get da da I don't remember. Anyway, there was there was something that that uh, that he had learned it was a shuffle, and it was like do do that, do that, and I couldn't do it, and he could do it, and I was so pissed off that I couldn't get that together, that I sat there and I just worked and worked and worked and worked until I got it, and it was rewarding, and I think that particular instance translated into another like a bunch of other ones were like, then I heard the rush working drum man, working drum man, <laughs> working man, drum solo. Right. And I was like, I got to cop at least part of this. And that turned into everything. Like I just like became obsessed with picking things up. Um, and then that sort of, sort of weaved its way into the fabric of what I was doing. Right. But it was all always kind of infused with bands. So there was a little bit of a balance there. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I yeah. uh, it's. I mean, why do you think? Why do you think that there's less? There's seemingly less focus on that sort of stuff and more focus on on technique. Do you think it's because of what we see online? Do you think it's sort of the the YouTube Instagram culture, or is it because you think you can fix it in post and it's not really needed in the studio anymore? Or I don't know if it's that conscious in terms of people thinking of it, you know, as in terms of how applicable it is. I just think that people are impressed by flash just instinctively. Mm -hmm. um, the people that th this is going to sound more disrespectful than I mean it, but the, the, the best musicians I know can tell the difference just between a bunch of flash and how someone assembles that flash to where it actually makes musical sense, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody picks up on that. Other people just see somebody playing really fast and they don't take it beyond that. Like that's it to them. It's like, Oh my God, this guy's just got unbelievable this and that. And you know, there, there's something to that. I mean, it takes a lot of time to develop that and all that. Right. But you know, to me, um, I just don't, that doesn't really do it for me anymore. I, mm -hmm. I like guys that, that know how to really shape something and take their time shaping it and mix it with, with things that just make a proper musical statement to me. Mm -hmm. um, and when I hear a lot of stuff for too long, it's kind of like somebody yelling at you for a long time <laughs> <laughs> and not stopping. You know? Right. Right. And it's, it's funny because like I've seen, you know, you poke around online and you see stuff and some, some performances I've seen of people that I just thought were like genius. I scroll down and I look at these comments and, and these guys are saying like, no, oh, this is boring or, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, come on, man. That's the other thing too, is that the internet gives a voice to 
you, you can't tell who it is that's saying anything. It just gives this sort of blanket voice to, to everyone. Right. Um, and, you know, which is fine, but I don't know. There's, there's so much in a lot of the stuff I see that doesn't really get paid attention to. I don't, I can't really tell you why that is. That's just kind of where we've ended up for mm-hmm. some reason. There's two things. One, there's definitely drummers that I've watched years ago and was like, this is boring and I don't get it. And now right. I'm like, it's the greatest thing in the world. It, me too. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I mean, that happened to me with Steve Jordan. and Steve, I mean, the first time I've said this before, the first time I saw Steve Jordan play on a video and I was like, eh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and now right. I'm like, it's the most amazing thing in the world. And it's the same video. And I'm I'm completely just like blown away by it. And I guess because you don't, I guess you can't tell I mean, you can't notice the intricacies, right? I guess that's what it is. As a well, there's that, and you also don't, you know, maybe when you saw it the first time, it didn't sink in, like what, where that fit into things, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. that's Steve Jordan's a perfect example of what we're talking about with instinct. Yeah, he's got incredible, you know, he's just got an, an unbelievable musical sense for everything. He mm-hmm. knows exactly what to do, and that's why he plays with who he plays with. Um, and, you know, some people are never in that position. They don't learn it. So maybe they don't appreciate it. Um, you know, everybody's life takes a different path. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I just did a clinic in, um, in Milwaukee a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And somebody in the audience asked a question about something. And I recalled a story when I was in the studio and I was like right in the middle of this huge phase of um, – chops and and i don't remember what it was but it was some vinnie call you to kick i was on and all of a sudden i got this call to record to remake a bunch of 50s tunes in the studio or 60s tunes you remember that band the turtles yeah yeah so what was the was it happy together that was the hit the happy together yeah that's yeah so like i just want to go i apologize to everyone who just had to listen to me sing for a half a bar (laughs) by the end of this still i'll be apologizing for all kinds of things so don't worry about it um i i got called to do this thing and they said okay we have to remake about you know 50 60 second tunes for a library thing or something and that was the thing i went in and i did this and that was the tune we had to remake that tune for 60 seconds and I don't know if you remember the drum part, but it's it's just bop, 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 snare hi-hat and kick drum all at the same time. Bop, uh-huh. bop, yep. bop, bop, I can hear it now that you're now that you're saying it. And I mean, I think that's how the tune starts or like that's the verse or something. Anyway, I got in and I just remember the click coming on and I counted it in and I could not do that with the click evenly and make it feel good. It really? was always like bop, 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 or it wouldn't sit in the same place or something. And I was, I just remember going like, Jesus, this is incredibly difficult. Why can't I do this? And then I learned I can play all this other bullshit, Mm -hmm. but I can't play this in time and set it up. So the course feels the right way. And then I had a whole new appreciation for all the studio guys that I grew up listening to, you know? Yep. Yep. And that's, and that is an entire art in itself. And that's what doesn't really get talked about so much. Mm -hmm. And if it does get talked about rather, people don't necessarily value it to the same extent that they used to. They, my, uh, my drum instructor would always tell like anytime they had a guy who was like, thought he was the shit at the drums and he would, you know, was like, Oh, let me sit in. 
they would always put them up and they would call a ballad at like 50 beats a minute and make them play with brushes. <laughs> Man, you know, you just reminded me of something else. One of the best uh, best stories I ever heard was when I first moved to New York. And this is kind of nasty, but, um, you know, New York, you know, you lived here. So, you know, it's it's a pretty harsh environment. Yeah. Um, and you don't get that many chances to, to prove yourself. And if you manage to get somebody to let you sit in somewhere, you better kill it or else you're never going to get called again, right. basically. Right. Um, in the late seventies, early eighties, I guess it was even worse It's before I was around, but there's a sax player named Lou Marini that I've done tons of playing with over the years. He's in the blues brothers for years. It's mm-hmm. one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And he told me this story <laughs> When he first moved to New York, I think he went to North Texas, and he got to New York, and the night he got here, he went to see Charlie – who was it? it? wasn't Charlie Hayden. Um, it was this band at Basil, Sweet Basil, like this big band. Um, God, why am I flaking on the last name? There's, uh, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, Charles Mingus, the Mingus band. God, oh. I can't believe I forgot that. Maybe you better edit that part out because I'm going to sound like a complete idiot. <laughs> That's um, okay. What drummer doesn't know the Mingus bands? I'm just, just Freudian slip. Anyway, so um, he went to see the Mingus band, and Charles Mingus was still alive, you know, and they were playing every Monday night at Sweet Basil, I think. And he like the first night he's here, he walks in. The club is totally packed. Typical like late '70s Monday night in New York, mm-hmm. and everybody's watching. And he said he watched the first set and there was a guy during the first set in the front who kept like kind of trying to talk to the band and saying something like at Mingus and Mingus would kind of look at the guy and nod his head and, and like act like you heard him or whatever. And, you know, they play another tune and the guy just kept doing this through the whole set. And Lou is sitting there going, this guy's kind of rude. I can't hear what he's saying, but it's kind of rude. So then the, they take a break and the guy is talking to Mingus on the break. Right. And, Lou doesn't know what's going on, but he thinks it's kind of interesting, right? So then they start to play the second set, and halfway through, Mingus, between tunes, he says, so um, we got a guy who we're going to have him sit in on drums. And he, he wouldn't tell me who the name, what the name of the guy was, or I don't know if he remembered, but he said, yeah, this guy's going to come up and sit in and blah, blah, blah. And so it turns out to be that guy, right? That right. guy stands up and he goes and he walks behind the kit and he sits down and Mingus goes, oh, you know, you comfortable? And the guy goes, yeah. Mingus goes, okay. And he goes, one, two, one, two. Like that fast. Right. Right. And the band tore in to some tune that was like so quick and unplayable, but they <laughs> killed it. They played for literally like eight bars and Mingus said, drum solo on the mic and everybody <laughs> got up and walked off stage <laughs> and Lou said it, it obviously they had worked this out to hang this guy out to dry right basically <laughs> and Lou said man I felt bad for the guy because the guy couldn't play in the first place and they all they, they did this and the whole you know however many 10 12 guys in the band just got up and walked off stage and left this guy playing a solo at a tempo that was unplayable. That's got to be one of the funniest stories I've ever heard. It's sad, but the guy kind of deserved it, right? Right, right. <laughs> and nobody knows who the guy was, huh? 
Well, he never told me. I, I don't know if he ever found out who it was. He said he didn't. You know, it was his first night in New York. I mean, right. when you think of Lou's <laughs> first night in New York. I mean, it had to be like 75 or 76, something like that. Right. I don't know. I wonder if that like scares the shit out of you if you just moved into New York too. Well, it certainly did to me. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, when I first moved here, I, I, I did my homework looking around, but I was like 20 years old, 21 years old. And I was right. lucky enough to have something going already, but it was still incredibly intimidating. You, you moved there to, to play with Michelle, right? Yeah, I basically I I got his gig at a pretty young age, and my brother was at Juilliard, so I just moved in with my brother. So, how, tell me how that whole thing happened. So, Weckl saw you playing somewhere. No, at- basically, you know, I had gotten into seeing. I'd really gotten into Dave's playing when I was in music school. When I was, you know, just a few years before that, I was probably seventeen or eighteen, and I just started following his career. And when I saw that he had sent a tape to Peter Erskine. And I thought, well, I'll send a tape to Dave. You know? <laughs> right. And so I sent Dave a tape um, and I didn't hear anything. Uh, and, you know, this is all pre-email. So mm-hmm. um, I do remember I sent him I sent him a tape and I just sent him some letters with stupid questions. And to his credit, I mean, God bless him, he actually wrote me back. Really? I, I, yeah, that, that was the most – when I think back on that, it's just incredible because – I guess at that time, you know, he was like he was in the peak of 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 his first like big thing. You know, he was right. in the center like he was a household name and doing all this stuff. And he took the time to write people back. It was it was unbelievable. Hmm. Um, and then what basically happened as far as him really hearing me play, he was do a cl- doing <clears throat> excuse me, a clinic in my hometown and he had just released that music minus one package. I can't remember. I think it was contemporary drummer plus one. Mm-hmm. And of course I'd been like shedding to that. And so I just kind of went and hung out at the music store, um, during the day before the clinic to see if he was going to do a sound check. And sure enough, here he comes and it's me and him and a sound guy. Nice. And I was just standing there and I started chatting him up and oh, I'm so-and-so. And I said, Oh, you know, and he remembered and, he was so nice. It was like, it was amazing. Um, and uh, what was happening, what, what I was hoping would happen basically happened. And he said, you know, go up and, and play um, while <laughs> I check the drums. That's not intimidating <laughs> at all. Well, I, it wasn't intimidating. Or, well, of course it was intimidating, but I was, I had almost rehearsed it that way in my mind. <laughs> I had been sitting in my house going like, I'm just going to work the shit out of these tunes and on the outside chance that I get this opportunity, I'll be prepared for it. Right. Of course I wasn't prepared for it. And that was very egotistical of me thinking (laughs) back, but I was so desperate to get something going, you know, and I was like probably 19 or something, maybe Mm -hmm. 20. Right. Um, and so that's what happened. And I, and I went up and he had a little Fostex four track next to him that he was using to play the, the, the tape of the tune. Mm-hmm. And so I just hit play and started playing with it, which is again, nice. too bold. Right. Know, for somebody. But that's what I did, you know, and he yeah, really he's probably like, who much. the hell's this kid think he is? Yeah, right. Yeah, right <laughs> basically. And you know, he didn't really say much. He said like, he, he walked up and he moved a mic and he said, yeah, man, sounds good. And right. uh, <laughs> that was it. And then the rest of the night we hung out 
you know, I wasn't even old enough to drink at that time. Mm -hmm. And we went and saw some local bands and things like that. And about two weeks later, I was living at my, my mom's house. And two weeks later, my mom comes in and wakes me up and says, Dave Weckl's on the phone. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? She goes, no. And she, of course, knew who he was. Right. And I answered the phone and, and I said, Dave, and he goes, listen, Michelle Camilo's looking for a drummer. And I just gave him your name. And I, just, I was like, that's unbelievable, you know. And then I flew to New York and auditioned and ended up getting it. Huh. So I mean, is that how intimidating is that? Or maybe not even intimidating, but more like sort of out-of-body experience when you're 19 years old, 20 years old. Yeah, you know, obviously, it, it, all those things. I mean, it was, it was surreal. And that's, you know, it's funny. I, I talked to, to Keith Carlock about this. A long time ago, right when he got Steely Dan's gig, mm -hmm. I said, you know, how does that feel? And he said, it's totally surreal. And I, and I can totally identify with that, just that frame of mind. It's it's, it's very odd feeling. It, it doesn't feel real at all. Mm -hmm. You feel like, is this really happening? You know? Right. Um, there's, and, you know what, though? I will say that there's, using your story and Keith's story, there's something that both of you guys did that I think is different than what a lot of people do is that you not only put yourself in a position to succeed, but you prepared. And I think a lot of people now, this is a, a, a blanket statement, but I think a lot of this is true that most people think once I get the gig, that's when I'll start doing the work. Or once I get connected with these people, that's when I'll do the work. But someone like you, you did the work beforehand so that you were ready for the situation. Keith did the work beforehand, moved to New York because he wanted to connect with Wayne and because he wanted to, uh, you know, to, he was like, I want to, I want to move to New York, play 55 bar at Wayne Krantz. Like, right. And see that there's your psychology that I was referring to. Mm -hmm. Some people have a sixth sense about how to put things in line to build up to whatever they need to do to get whatever it is that, that you want. Mm -hmm. um, some people can think about it, but they can't necessarily manifest it into a day-to-day -day routine. Um, I, for some reason, I just always had this instinct that, plus I, you know, I'd just been through music school and that was my first experience with other drummers and my confidence was okay. I mean, I had gotten, you know, kicked in the, in the teeth a few times, mm -hmm. which I needed to have happen. But at the same time, you know, I had teachers telling me like, well, you know, you, you can probably do pretty well if you, if you keep your head on and you, you really work. And so rather than stay in LA, which is where I went to music school, I moved back to San Diego and I started practicing eight hours a day. I mean, I basically just emulated what Dave had done and to my dismay, a lot of his playing at the time, because I was too no, too young to really know any better mm -hmm. that you can't just clone somebody. That's something right. I would change if I went back because, I mean, I was lucky that I could hear what he was doing and, and I could sort of emulate what he was doing, but I didn't really have time to develop a sound before I got on this gig. Right. Mm. And that's really important now, especially, I think that's like the most important thing. And eventually something sort of manifested that that is a little more personal for me sound wise but do you think you kind period, of felt like a like a weckle clone for a while oh I, well i totally was a weckle clone i mean i was on his gig basically <laughs> right? but yeah, you know all of us had a version of that at some point 
you know, everyone was influenced by Dave. Everyone was setting up like Dave. It was one of those things, but I wasn't mature enough or aware enough to know at that time how important it was to be an individual. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I did get gigs and I started, you know, there was some buzz going on about things and, and it was great. But if I had it to do all over again, I probably would have taken a little more time. But, you know, what are you going to do? What do you mean by taking, taking more time and what not did the, the Michelle gig? Or? I wouldn't say I would have not done the gig, but I would have had a different – my frame of reference in terms of what was important would have been different. Mm, I, I haven't so. had enough time to, to develop anything but like this period that I had really worked on for a couple of years to play with clicks and – you know, uh, I hadn't had enough experience of like really tearing into like real jazz shit or, mm -hmm. you know, that then as soon as I got to New York, I started doing it then and going around and looking, you know, and, and we were all, like I said, you know, I, I got to be friends with Zach Danziger at that time and mm -hmm. he was in the same boat. You know, we were both sounding very Dave-ish and we were both into the same guys and, you know, we were finding our way and we're both kids, you know, you're like mm -hmm. 20 years old and you're on this gig. It's you're going from playing weddings to playing jazz festivals and you look on the side of the stage and Dennis is standing there or Dave is standing there. There's a whole psychological element to that. <laughs> I'm <too>. sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just would have done things a little differently, but I, I don't really blame myself or anybody else because I just didn't know any better. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is. The typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly. So when you tighten down one lug, it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side. That's why you have to tune it diagonally. But now with the new Sonicleer edge from Mapex, that's a thing of the past. The Sonicleer Edge allows the head to sit flush, so it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonicleer Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. This episode is 100% free thanks to our friends at Evans Drumheads, and they want to let you know that although you may sit at the back of the stage, the band revolves around you. Why? Because you set the tempo, the intensity, and most importantly, the tone. And the easiest way to set the tone is to play Evans Drumheads with Level 360 technology. Thanks to Level 360 technology, Evans Drumheads fit perfectly across the shell and allow for increased tension to help you find your sweet spot. Plus, they take you well beyond the normal tuning ranges for higher highs and lower lows. Lower lows. <laughs> now the sound you want will always be the sound that you get. For more info, check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. Now let's get back into it with Cliff Allman. What do you think is the, is the best advice for... Because we all have people who we look up to. We all have people who we emulate. We all have people who inspire us and influence our playing. But you have to take all of those things and put them together into this melting pot of your own playing. How do you suggest that people do that using external influences? That's a pretty broad question. I mean, the, the one thing I tell everybody is to start from a psychological standpoint of being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. from from the get-go like you gotta be real clear about 
for one thing, what you're willing to do, um, how much work you're willing to put in. If you make mistakes or every, like say everybody's telling you, you drag on a gig and you're fighting them going, no, I don't drag. <laughs> and you hear a tape and you're dragging, you're saying, well, I'm not dragging. You know, you have, that's the kind of honesty I'm talking about. If you want to get better, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that something's not working now. Right. right. So first thing you have to fix all those basic mistakes and then you have to be hungry enough to, to just absorb everything for quite a few years. You have to do a lot of gigs and a lot of styles and tape yourself and just be a maniac about it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things kind of like losing weight, you know, where mm-hmm. everybody sees it, but you don't see it necessarily. Right. Right. You know, and t- until it's all gone and then what you're like, oh, I lost some weight, you know, yep. that kind of that kind of thing. I still don't feel um, as comfortable with with some things that I play. Um, I I mean, I don't think any of us, any of the guys that I know or respect that are good, like they're never really 100% comfortable with what they're doing, Mm -hmm. but they're just trying stuff all the time, you know? Right. And through that trying and through combining a lot of things, eventually something shows up. And once you see it or you start to hear it, if you can identify it, then you can start shaping it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so, was. I actually I had a conversation with uh, with John Fishman from Fish, and he was saying that they've been playing this song in their repertoire since like '94, and it's a shuffle. And he was like, not up until this past December of 2017, I never thought that that song felt good, and I never liked the way that I played it. And I feel like last a couple months ago, you know, he's like, I played it finally one time that i actually felt like it was okay you know he's right. been playing it for you know 30 years sure i mean you know it that's that's kind of a common occurrence i think with even though people don't necessarily talk about it um and i've had this conversation with a lot of a lot of really like some drummers that are really popular and in fact i had that conversation once with michael brecker when he was still alive um I told Michael Brecker that there was this one record that he, a cameo record that he took a solo on that was, it was so in the pocket. It was with the drum machine. It was just, it was so good. It was like a sequencer that swung and it had all of his signature shit on it. And it was, God, man, if I ever meet him, I, I have to tell him. And so, you know, obviously I got to meet him. I was talking to him and I told him like, oh man, I just love this tune and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, I rushed the hell out of that. <laughs> I said, "What can you rush the hell out of it? It's perfect." He's like, "No," <laughs> like he he wasn't crazy about it, you know. And I remember reading somewhere after that that he used to he used to wait two years before he even listened to what he had recorded on a record or live or whatever, just because he would judge it too much. Right? This is the flip side of the honesty thing, you know. Right. When you start getting inside of stuff, you, then you start over criticizing it. But at the same time, that's part of the package too. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a, it's a really delicate balance of things to to really get better or develop your sound into something. It's it's not easy to do, and it can be a real it, it can be a nightmare in a lot of respects. But yeah. you know, it, it's it, if you're chosen to do it and you're as obsessed with it as I was or any of these other guys are, then you're kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. The two things I wanted to ask you about. One, you mentioned a little while back about the idea of 
taking an idea or taking a goal that you have and manifesting it into this sort of day-to-day thing to get there. And you said that it was something that's innate. Do you think that that's, that's a skill that you can learn or do you think it, that's something that you either have or you don't? Oh, I, I think it's definitely something you can learn. Um, a lot of it, I think, you know, I, there are different versions of it. I mean, there are some people who are very good at long-term planning and calculating things out. Sometimes you have to, to train yourself to do that. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it might take something having to really possess you for you to take a step back and go, okay, I'm willing to change everything to get this thing. Mm-hmm. And then it forces people to think that way. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, like music and the arts don't necessarily, <clears throat> excuse me, don't necessarily lend themselves to a, uh, uh, a, a, that type of thought all the time. Like you see some people who are really great promoters, but they're not as good of musicians. Or you see guys who are great musicians, but they don't have any confidence in themselves, so they don't promote. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these are like psychological things that have to intertwine in the right set of ingredients for things to to take off, Mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Um, But I mean, there are certain bottom lines that you can always look at. I mean, anything worthwhile obviously is going to take a period of years to get together and you're going to have to be really patient. Um, I know a lot of musicians in my hometown who are really good. But when it came to really doing what they had to do, they just weren't really willing to do it. They didn't mm-hmm. want to move to New York or they didn't want to move to L.A. Um, now, the age I am now, I probably wouldn't want to do it either. But right. that's what I mean by honest. You have to like because you're going to get tested as time goes on. Things are going to come up and they're not going to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna, then you're going to have to ask yourself, well, do I really want to do this? Because I'm going to have to go through the, if this is the missing piece of the puzzle, um, then I'm, I'm going to have to do that. There's not really much of a choice. I mean, yep. If you have a family or if you have commitments in other parts of your life, you might not be able to get up and move to another town or whatever. All this stuff is about the honesty thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then you break it down to whatever extent you have to. Sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people, uh, they talk that they say that they want to do something, but they don't want to put the work in. I remember it was an author. I think it was Austin Cleon who, who wrote a, he wrote two books that I really enjoyed. One's called steal, like a steal, like an artist. And the other one is called show your work. Um, and they're both really good, but they're short, easy books to read, but they're really good. But he said that he said that a lot of people want to be, they want to be the noun, but they don't want to be the verb. So everyone, Boy, wants, that's, that's an eloquent statement. That's yeah. really true. It's, and I, I, I heard that and it just, it was sort of like the light bulb went on where, you know, everyone wants to say they're a writer, but no one actually wants to spend the time writing and people want to say that they're, you know, a, a musician or a professional musician, but they don't actually want to be the verb of being the professional musician. I thought that was a really powerful thing that he said. Well, yeah. And, and here we go back to a little bit of our previous conversation, like we were talking about why certain things fly on YouTube and why they don't, or why people are impressed by flash. Well, the flash is just, is the surface, Mm -hmm. right? If I sit in my room for the next two years and and work my ass off on licks and chops and stuff, I can develop some sort of vocabulary and I could put it on YouTube and I might have 
300,000 people check it out and say that's interesting, you know? Right. But that's just the surface of things, right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to like really digging to do the next level stuff of like putting phrases together or playing in a band or surviving as a musician, um, those are skills that are like kind of out in the field skills that are going to take a lot of dedication and time. Not everybody's willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Or they might say they're willing to do it, but then they get out there and they see how tough it is. And, you know, we, we've all been through our version of that. Mm-hmm. You know? Why do you think so, people don't want to put that work in? Do you think it's probably, fear of failure or is it? It's probably that. It's, I mean, I can only identify with my own version of it, but it, it's, I don't know. It, it Some people are, are, like I said before, they're content when they get to a certain place. Um, which I think is kind of the kiss of death, you know, um, or they become complacent or they get a gig and they become complacent or, mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but I will tell you, like you mentioned Krantz, I just played with Krantz a couple of hours ago because we're going to go up to Montreal, uh, day after tomorrow to play the jazz festival. Mm-hmm. And now this is a guy who's like, you know, as far as guitar players, go has changed the the course of the instrument to a lot of people um he's constantly in fact i remember he said a version of this today we were playing was just me and him playing duo and at one point he said like you know in this one spot if it feels there because it's all improvising if if it's if it if it feels like it's supposed to go to funk there like naturally if if that's your instinct then do something else Mm -hmm. (laughs) right (laughs) And, and that, that psychology is why he's found all this unique shit. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's what yeah. a lot of people don't want to do. Like a lot of people, they want to find this one formula. I, I think to, to re- reduce it down to one word, I guess it would be the need of the certainty of all this stuff. Everybody wants to know that if they put a certain amount of time in, then this is going to happen. Or if I move to New York, then this is going to happen. Or if, you know, and the reality is that you can't say that about anything. Mm -hmm. Really. Mm -hmm. You can't even say you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. So, I mean, chances are you will, but you know what I mean? And if you really start pondering stuff like that, I think that those are the things that scare most people away. Uh, I would agree. And I, I think that, I, and I've struggled with this before too, where it's like, what happens if I put all of this work in, I, you know, I tell everyone that this is what I'm working on and this is what I'm going to do. And, and I put all these hours in and I sacrifice all these things and it doesn't happen. And then what, you know, and, and I think most of the time it ends up, it ends up being false anyway, but, but it, you have to live with that. Uh, I guess that, that fear of failure that, well, there, there's that. that. And there's also like, you know, uh, and I've done a lot of homework on this because I've been through my periods of not liking anything I did. And, you know, I talked to a lot of other musicians about it. And it's just a natural part of the process. I mean, everybody's questioning their own thing all the time. That's just human nature. No one really talks about it, but it's true. Um, I saw there was something, I don't know if you saw this, but there was something going around Facebook, a, an interview with Steve Martin, where he says, uh, they ask him, like, what what advice would you give to somebody coming up or something similar to what we're talking about? And his response was get so good that nobody can ignore you Mm -hmm. or something like that. Now, when you phrase it like that, that's completely in your control. Yep. 
right? That's not out of your control. The other stuff is out of your control. Whether Sting is going to call you is out of your control. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. All these things are out of your control, but what's in your control is to navigate as far as you can in that direction, take whatever initiative you can, and then you just have to let things happen. Right. Now, if you spend 10 years living in New York or LA or somewhere and nothing ends up happening, you know, then you reassess and you figure out what your next move is going to be. But when you start thinking the way you're describing, which I do and we've all done, and now that I look back on that, I realize that, that those were the most detrimental thoughts I could have. I mean, they basically got in my way of concentrating on what I needed to concentrate on, Mm -hmm. but they weren't conscious, you know, that's just natural stuff. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be kind of smart enough to know when to listen to what your brain is telling you. And when it's just a fear. Yeah. I mean, somebody, I I heard this also recently too. Somebody was talking about how, you know, you're, you're, we're all kind of wired to survive basically, right? Mm-hmm. Like the instinct of your brain is to survive. So if you take a step back, that means that your brain is going to tell you things to try to protect you. Mm-hmm. Like if you go to this town, you know, you might go broke or this might happen. Right. That's, that's a protection mechanism that's kind of wired into your system. Yep. That doesn't mean you have to listen to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, right. Is, it is. It is interesting. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it takes a lot and I hate using this word, but it takes some, some self-awareness too of, of understanding. And I think hard self-awareness is something that's hard to, that's sort of hard to develop, but understanding, is this just my brain telling me this or should I really listen to this? And, and should I really, am I lying to myself or, you know, am I right? Right. But self-awareness is also another version of the honesty I was talking about. Yep. Like you have to be self-aware enough and honest enough to, to look and be objective without almost involving too much emotion, mm-hmm. you know, it's so hard because it's incredibly hard. But when you get it, when you spend years being in this position, I mean, it's one of the good things about being self-employed or being a musician is that, you know, it's all on you. It's not a job that you go and, you know, you clock out at five, you know, mm-hmm. you're stuck with that all the time. Yep. You go to bed with it, you wake up with it. You know, it's it's a business to an extent. You know, you have to make your living off of this. You have to somehow construct a lot of things that require a lot of mental fortitude to to be able to navigate things correctly. Mm -hmm. You have to look down the road a few years. You have to keep your eyes open about what's coming. I mean, I remember when the whole home studio thing started to take off um, and I, I could see it a few years out that people were, you know, starting to put studios in their houses and your drum rooms. And I mean, there are people still in my hometown that are like, Oh, you know, I don't want to get into that. You know, it's not necessary. (laughs) I mean, and now it's like a complete, it's just a staple. Like what drummer doesn't have a setup to record. Right. Right. (laughs) This internet thing's not going to, I don't think it's going to take off. Right. But see, but that's what I mean, again, (laughs) by being honest, like the guy that told me that I was like, this guy's a working drummer in my hometown. And he's still banking on the gigs that were happening when he was 20 years old. Right. That's not being honest or self-aware or just aware in general. Mm-hmm. And that's no disrespect. You know, if he wants to choose that, that's fine. But when he's not making a living or that aspect of his career is not happening, he can thank himself for it. 
basically. Yep. I I agree. Adapt or die, you know, and it really is true. And you know, this music especially is a, a socially conscious thing too. So you're going to see drummers like I did. You know, Weckle was the guy, and so I emulated Weckle. I set up like Weckle. You know, the guys like whoever the guy is now. When Keith first came out, everybody's tilting their snare drum. You know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You yeah. know, this people observe this stuff and and take pieces of it, and it's all relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it takes us all to the next step too, whatever that might be. Yeah. I made a, I made a statement, uh, a couple months ago that was like, I put something out on Instagram was like, and is the sooner you come to terms and accept the fact that the music business is never going to be the way that it was, you can start to move on and start planning your course accordingly. Everyone's waiting for the, you know, waiting for it to go back to the way it was or, or upset that it's like, oh, these young kids don't know that they're yeah. using electronics and all. It's like, guess what? <sighs> That's where it is. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but see again, I mean, I hate to keep making this reference, but it's really, it's just, it's, this is the honesty stuff. It's there. Are, and that's another thing too, is that, you know, People have a subconscious sense of entitlement, which is another self-awareness thing that you have to you have to learn to spot. Um, and a lot of mostly people, you know, who have been in in this longer than you and I have, like it just gets worse as people get older. Yeah. You know. Yep. Um, and there are a lot of people who will stick to it. Um, and it, it really just hurts you in the end. I mean, if you're really smart, you'll pay attention to what's going on and you'll find out some way to integrate it into what you already know because you were here before other people. You have skills that maybe those guys don't necessarily have. Right. And if you combine all those things together, you can come up with something that nobody else can touch. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't think of it that way. They think and, – and it's not even conscious. A lot of times they're just like, no, this is – this is my shit. Right. And, you know, when I show up, I'm going to do my shit and nobody can do it like me. And then within 10, 15 years, their phone's not really ringing. Mm-hmm. And there's 50 guys that can do their shit better than them. Yep. And they're really pissed at the world. And that's it. You yep. know, you don't want to end up like that. No, you that sounds really harsh, but, but that's I the way it, it is. Yeah. I see it all the time, too. And that's what's that's what's hard to see. And I think if a lot of these people don't, if they embrace it, there's such, I mean, there's so much opportunity out there with how how small the world has become because of the internet. Well, and that's the thing too. If you're, if, if anyone's going to make a statement like, um, like I can't remember exactly how you phrased it a a few minutes ago, but in terms of, you know, not having to develop or not like, let's say the studio thing, for example, all that kind of stuff ropes around something outside of the drums. It's all related to the, to the way the world is connected now for, Oh, going back to how things were Mm -hmm. like, I have friends who are still trying to get record deals, right? Yeah. I mean, why would anyone, there's no need for a record deal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I, I have a teaching website. I did an interview with John DeChristopher from Zildjian right Mm -hmm. before he retired. And I asked him what's different now than, you know, maybe 20 years ago when I met him. And he said, well, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the record companies would call us and say, you know, we've got this band and will you help the drummer and we need to promote him and blah, blah, blah. He said, that's all gone. Like record companies don't or or barely even existent anymore. And Mm -hmm. now the bands do it themselves and they do it all on YouTube. Well, 
I, mean, I know people who are still trying to get signed, which doesn't, even if you get signed, it doesn't really necessarily mean anything. Yep. They're not going to promote your tour. They're not going to, it's, it's all you. Now you can say that's terrible because it is terrible in a way, but people at that time would have to pay that money back anyway. Right. You know, right. so You're it's just really go just, to the bank and get a loan. <laughs> well, it's true. It's just a different version of what's happening now. But, you know, I, honestly, I think that whole thing ends up as, is just a big entitlement issue. And I th people just shortchange themselves without realizing it. They just totally cut off their potential by thinking that way. It's, right. it's unfortunate. I mean, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time arguing about Spotify and YouTube and how much artists are getting paid and all that. And I, I agree that artists should be getting paid, but I think that like, it's the way of the world. So you have to figure, you have to figure these things out. Exactly. It's, well, it's terrible. What it's Spotify absolutely, is doing it is. and, and it is. it's, it's really terrible. And, and the record companies, I don't know too much about how it happened, but as far as I know, the record companies had some clause where they could sell that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I've seen all that. I've seen the Bette Midler check of what was that check that she posted or yeah, somebody posted? Yeah, it was, it was like, like twenty five dollars for two million plays. Or, you know that yeah. kind of that's just insane. It right? is insane. But at the end of the day, if that's what's happening, you better get with it or get another job. Right, right. I, you're I not going to fight the market. Too. No, you're not, and you're not going to fight. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, fight a whole generation of kids that have now accepted that as the norm and who are adapting to it. And in another 20 years, something else will come along that they have to adapt to. Mm -hmm. That's just the way things work. Nobody likes it. It's just right. the way that things work. Right. I don't, I don't hear, uh, I don't hear the record labels and all the artists complaining that when tapes, when everyone had tapes and then they started putting out CDs, how everyone went out and bought another copy of the record because they wanted it on CD. So it's like, some of these records that sold 20 million actually sold 40 million because they bought the tape and the CD. You know? Right. Right. I mean, and there, and there are all kinds of good things that come out of this stuff too. Um, you just mentioned CDs when I did this tour with this band in Japan, like last year, they were telling me about some group, uh, in Japan. So I think it was like a, a girl group that had come up with this marketing thing with CDs where if you bought, a certain amount of CDs, you were entered in a lottery. I think it was to have lunch with them or something, and they were really popular. Mm -hmm. They were selling like people were buying ten CDs at a time. That's nuts. I mean, that, that's kind of brilliant marketing thing. Yeah. Right? But I mean, so the problem is like the, you know the garbage dump is full of this band CDs, you know. Right. But but that you know people come up with clever ways out of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, then that opens up something. It's just, this just how progress happens and yeah. it's terrible in some ways and great in others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I hear the excuse or, or the, the argument that like, you know, a lot of bands rely being on the road, they rely on selling CDs and I'm like, yeah, okay, well then sell digital downloads. Like, if, yeah, you right. know, like I, if, it, then figure it out. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, that is a tough one. That subject in particular, I mean, they're, they're going to have to adapt to it in particular, but there are elements of this that nobody can really win. I mean, I've, I've seen the stats on some of these bands that, and I'm sure you've seen it too on Facebook, like these bands that go out and tour for two years and do 2,000 seat venues and they walk off the tour 
having sold merchandise and sold out these venues, you know, owing another $10,000 or something. I mean, you know, this is the first, this is just the first time in history that that's been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's no real clear cut solution to it yet. I mean, it could very well be that we're down the road of, of this not being a money making, money making endeavor for anybody past a point. Right. Um, and we're going to all have to accept that if it happens. And it's already – there are elements of it that are really like that. You know, There are mm-hmm. people that – I mean you see all these guys with teaching websites now, um, that guys that, that have done unbelievable things everywhere. Um, in New York, New York, you see people doing things that they didn't used to, uh, to do. There are people going into Broadway in New York now Yeah. Um, that no one would even look at Broadway when I first moved here. And now mm-hmm. there's great musicians in there. Yeah. Um, just things are changing. It's, mm-hmm. it's that's just how it is. And you, again, you adapt or you get out or, you know, or you die as you put it. Right. That's just the way it is. Right. It's terrible in some respects, but you have to get with it. You don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. The one positive that I see is that, or one of the positive, I feel like there's a lot more people going to see live music. There's a lot more music festivals. There's a lot more just, I, I, I feel like maybe not on a smaller level, but at a larger level, there's more, there's more people going to see live music. Well, there's that. And there's also, I mean, the level of musicianship now, despite what we were just talking about earlier with the whole YouTube thing, that's, that's only part of the picture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guys who really cop the whole music picture are coming to a level of maturity that it took us, you know, 40, 50 years old to get to just in terms of awareness, the ones who really have the skill to internalize the chops and mix everything together and have the talent, they're growing up on YouTube, seeing all this stuff for free. I mean, they're just able to, to get by the, by the time they're 20 years old, they've got the dialogue, they've got the deepest jazz shit imaginable together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yet they can't necessarily get paid more f- than 50 bucks for a gig somewhere. Right. right. You know, yeah. Um, you know, you pick your poison there. Like, like uh, it's just the, the, the variety of that stuff is just so insane mm-hmm. how, how it's, how it's gotten, but it that's what it is. Yeah. Agreed. So speaking of live music, where can people see you playing live? I know that you're getting ready to go, uh, do some shows with Wayne and then what else do you have on tap? Um, let me see. I, I just got back from Greece where I was doing something in Athens with some local guys there. I'm just sort of like freelancing on the scene. Um, I have some stuff being put together in Asia. I'm going to do some teaching over there, but in terms of seeing me live, I'm not doing as much live playing over the next few months. Um, as I normally do, I'm doing a couple of things with Wayne and I'm, and, uh, I'm playing with Reza Bazi, who's a great, um, sort of Indian ish guitar player, um, some things in Indiana and Ohio over the summer. Um, I'm doing some recording here. Actually, I'm, I'm going to be recording. I don't know if this has really been announced yet, but um, Michelle Camilo years ago did this big band album that was one of his sort of more popular records. And he's doing another one of those this summer for the first time in t- like 20 some years or God, maybe closer to 30 years. 
Um, and I'm going to play on that. Awesome. So that's kind of a big deal coming up and, you know, little things here and there. I mean, New York stuff changes all the time. I'm not playing with one band in particular, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I'm just kind of freelancing and recording and doing all the things that, that everybody does on the scene. So, but the oh. biggest things I have this summer, are those res things and, and Wayne and a week of like a jazz thing in Taiwan that I do every, every few years or so. So. Cool. And the best way or the best place to go is just go to your website, cliffalman.com. It is. Yeah. Um, I have a teaching site too that, that I used for years and then it got hacked last year and I sort of put it back up, but I'm about to get back to business on that a little more. Um, so that that's, and there are links to that on my, my page too on cliffalman.com. You know, what's amazing that you just said that, that you're probably the fourth or fifth person who I've taught, who I've had on here, who had a teaching website that was hacked. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. I think we all got kind of, uh, targeted. It's, it's like, I I mean, I asked them like, who would want to hack my teaching website? You know, that was the first thing that popped into my head. I think, would it be another drummer or, you know, what would it be? And then someone told me that, well, this is how these guys practice to hack. You know, they mm-hmm. find this, whatever they can. And, you know, it's interesting you say that, that you have more than a few guys that have the same boat, you know, getting hacked. It's, uh, I don't know why that would be. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody's <laughs> yeah, out there targeting drummers or something. So. Could be. It's no me. Idea. Yeah. It's me. I'm, I'm out just like, that's what I do on planes. That's your, that's your thing. Yeah, it's my thing. I that's how you're, you figured site. out how to make some bread on the side. You're just, <laughs> yeah, and I just link link my site to all their shit. Right. Break in. And <laughs> go to this site. <laughs> well, if the drummer's resource site gets hacked, you're the first person I'm calling. So. Oh, no. I'll, I'm sure I'll be out of town when that happens. Right, but, right. No, you can try. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Cliff, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat, man. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to get you on for, for a long time. So it's great to, Thanks, man. to line this up. I appreciate all the, all the insights and, and really going deep on some of these topics, man. I, I really do appreciate it, man. I appreciate it too. Thanks. That's, that's a good, good discussion there about some stuff that's pretty important. That doesn't always happen in these, in these situations. So, Agreed. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Thanks again. All right, man. All Take right. care. That was the amazing Cliff Almond. I hope you dug that. That conversation for me was awesome. You know that you know how I feel about the sort of self-awareness, all of this esoteric stuff that that I always like to talk about and and goal setting and manifesting things that you want and working hard and all of that stuff. Really enjoyed this conversation. You can also check out the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session four zero seven. Again, if you dig the podcast, do me a big favor. Please share it with your friends and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's all I ask. It's 100% free for you. And it lets people know about the podcast and lets more people find out that there's some really cool conversations going on with the world's greatest drummers. And I would love you for it. I'd love you either way, but I would love you more if you do that. That's all I got for you today. Thanks so much for listening. Keep drumming and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.